Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood and it's story time. I can hear you now. Kingswood, where the hell you have been the last few weeks? Thought the dear hiatus was over. Um, yeah, I thought so too. What can I say? It's been a, it's been kind of a weird month. Um, a lot of good stuff's happened. I just lost the bubble completely on my schedule for almost everything, though. It's weird. Yeah, I think that's happened to a lot of people with, with this whole weird shutdown, chicanery. Yeah, you can tell it's an election year. Anyway, the uh, uh, a lot of good stuff's happened in the last month. Uh, I completed that Kickstarter I told you about, funded it. Ooh, uh, the first time ever doing that uh, successfully, so that was good. We uh, are getting started on the audiobook that of uh the second glimmerville chronicles book now i just listened to a few chapters from the narrator and that's uh he's, he's doing a good job of it so that's that's fun uh what else happened i finished my uh, uh my great short story challenge 52 weeks 50... really what else happened? I finished my great short story challenge, 52 weeks, 52 short stories. I actually wrote like 54, I think. There's just a few weeks where I did two. Um, so that was successful. That was awesome. And uh, I frankly haven't done that much writing in the couple weeks since then, just because I kind of decided to, well, uh, frankly, I got a little lazy. And <laughs> one of the things I did is I uh, backed the Kickstarter for... Uh, the new Pathfinder game, Pathfinder, what, Wrath of, Wrath of the Righteous? It's a video game. There was a previous game that had come out with it called uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker. And I'd been wanting to play it forever, but I hadn't gotten around to it. And uh, I backed the Kickstarter, and one of the Kickstarter rewards was, hey, look, you get uh, you get a copy of the first game. So I got sunk into that, and I pulled my head out earlier this week, and was like, what did I do in the last two weeks except for work and kids and the video game man i totally slacked off on everything because i mean yeah, i love dungeons and dragons and pathfinders you know grata dungeons and dragons and anyway so kind of was a slacker in a bunch of ways last few weeks but that's okay i'm back hopefully you guys don't mind too much and if you do then uh, mea culpa uh but we'll get right back into the swing of things here with two more chapters from the pericles conspiracy because uh, i'm getting Closer to the end, this is this week is chapters 45 and 46. There's only 63 chapters in the whole book. So we'll power through this, get done, and move on to some other stuff. I mean, I know you're not tired of the story. I'm not tired of the story either because I wrote it and I like it. But I would like to share other things with you in addition. And Lord knows I've got enough short works uh, sitting in the queue now that we can spend a lot of time uh, telling shorter stories here on the podcast as well. Uh, so that'll be fun. Um, hope everything's been going well with you guys out there. Uh, everybody's keeping safe and having fun in this uh, fun government-imposed exile everybody's doing. Um, I got multiple thoughts on that that probably don't bear going into here. 
But, uh, hey, listen, Navy helicopters flying overhead. Not sure if you can hear that or not in my awesome little podcasting nook, but I can hear it. But uh, fun thing about San Diego. Anyway, the, uh, yeah, so we'll just get to it. Hopefully you like these chapters. And, uh, again, sorry for the shorter hiatus this time. We'll stick with you from now on out. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, listen, enjoy, and I'll talk to you on the flip side. Thanks. Chapter 45. Getaway. Now what? Joe wished she did not sound quite so plaintive. Malcolm looked around the room for a second, then spread his hands helplessly. I suppose we could try to lift it. We could probably carry it out as a group. Joe just looked at him for a moment, then turned away in disgust. They were never going to get out of there without the handcuffs if they tried to move the incubator that way. See if you can find something to lever it with, she said over her shoulder. Then she stalked over to where Jorgen and Courtney were working. At least things were going better there. As Joe approached, Jorgen pumped one fist over his head. And that, my friends, is how we do that, he said, and slipped away from the console. Turning toward Courtney, he made a little half bow and said, Over to you. Courtney just shook her head and pulled out her safe-cracking tools from her pack, which lay on the floor next to her. Then she got the work. Well done, Joe said. She meant it. That was quick work. Pretty impressive. Jorgen nearly nodded in reply, but from the way his mask moved, Joe was pretty sure he grinned. See if you can help Malcolm. We're going to have to try to carry or haul that thing out of here. She jerked her thumb at the incubator, and we'll need a lot of mechanical assistance. Jorgen's smile, if that's what it was, vanished. Fuck. Yep. He moved over to Malcolm's side, and the two of them began talking. Brainstorming, Joe assumed. Joe reached into the cargo pocket of her left thigh and pulled out the wireless unit from the van. Thomas, she said into the microphone. A burst of static preceded Thomas's voice. Go. See if you can find a cargo loader or a dolly or something. We're going to have to move the incubator the old-fashioned way. A few seconds of silence paused, then Thomas replied, Roger, and the wireless went dead. Joe checked her wrist chronometer. They'd been inside the lab complex for 15 minutes. How long before responders put out the fire in the outbuilding? How long before somebody thinks to check on the lab? She shook her head. They were running out of time, and this snafu with an incubator might just doom them all. Once again, it was Grant and Thomas to the rescue. I was getting a bit old, actually. Courtney made short work of the safe and turned the rod over to Joe with a professional nod. Joe turned the rod over in her hands and inspected it. No sign of damage. But just to be sure, she pressed each button in turn and watched first the star map, then the alien captain giving his speech, then the first few frames of the technical schematics. A bit of her tension went away. The thing still worked. That was good. Key, in fact. Joe took off her pack and slipped the rod inside, then donned it again. And then they all gathered around the incubator and tried to come up with a plan. They had gotten precisely nowhere when Thomas strode through the airlock door from the medical section. Or at least Joe presumed it was Thomas, since he seemed to be the one to take the lead. We found a wheeled cart, he said. It was, Thomas. But it will never fit through that airlock. Joe groaned and looked back at the incubator, sitting there in all its massive glory. Well, Jorgen said, not even a hint of enthusiasm in his voice. We'll just have to lug it through the airlock then, I guess. I'll get Grant, Thomas said. A minute later, the four men had the incubator lifted up in the air to waist level. It's not so bad, Grant said, though the strain in his voice put the lie to that. Shut the fuck up, said his brother. Thomas turned his head to Joe. Hold the doors open. And so Joe held the inner door open, and Courtney took the outer. And with a lot of grunting, cursing, and sweat, the men got the incubator out into the medical lab, into the cart the brothers found. Cart was a misnomer. It was more a small platform with wheels on it. The thing was maybe a meter on each side and did not look particularly sturdy. 
That's not going to work, Courtney said as she eyed it skeptically. Not much choice, Grant said through gritted teeth from the sound of it. The men lowered the incubator down onto the little cart with sighs of relief. Joe more than halfway expected it to collapse, but to her amazement, the little cart held, and before long, they were off. To say it was slow going would be an understatement. It seemed one end of the incubator or another overbalanced and struck the ground every ten meters of progress they made, to everyone's consternation. There was never a hope that Grant or Thomas could scout out ahead. It required all four men to keep the incubator even slightly balanced, so the task fell to Courtney, who sounded decidedly unpleased with the notion. But with little choice in the matter, she darted ahead, wireless in hand, to warn of threats to the front. The minutes stretched out, and Joe felt more and more certain they would be set upon and captured at any moment. Surely they were interior security cameras. And surely those security cameras had received power from the emergency supply. Someone in the security shop would vector guards down upon them at any moment, and then they would be done. Except that did not happen. Somehow they made it through the lower-level corridors to a long, circling ramp that led to ground level. They stopped at the top of the ramp to give the men a break from pushing, and Courtney came to rejoin them. Mostly clear ahead, she said, but not sure for how long. Heard some guards go past down the main corridor a minute or two ago. Said something about somebody not calling in for their hourly sit-rep. Son of a bitch, Thomas said. We gotta move, now. Of course, there was moving, and then there's moving. Move they did, but it wasn't nearly as fast as Thomas clearly wanted. Hell, as any of them wanted, Joe included. But there was only so much speed the heavy and awkward incubator could allow. By the time they turned onto the main corridor that ran through the complex, Joe was about to jump out of her skin. Surely the guard Courtney saw would have found the ransacked guard post outside the lab by now. They would have divided their forces, one or two tending to their comrades while the others went on to check the lab, and then when that happened... Contact rear! Grant's voice cut through Joe's thoughts. He was at the front of the incubator, working to keep it from hitting the deck. Consequently, he was looking behind the team and saw them first. Joe spun around. A group of four guards was sprinting down the corridor behind her team, weapons in hand, but not yet brought to bear. Halt! ordered the guard in the lead. As though responding to the guard's order, Thomas let go of his purchase at the rear of the incubator and turned to the rear, bringing his rifle to bear on the approaching guards. They scattered before Thomas fired his first shot, the lead guards leaping forward onto their bellies, the guards in the rear diving for cover in a crossing passageway. Thomas fired anyway, a steady stream of superheated particles that kept the guards' heads down, at least for the moment. Move! Malcolm and Jorgen redoubled their efforts. They had to, because Grant left his position on the incubator and took a knee, adding his own fire to his brother's. That was not going to work. Joe hurried next to Malcolm and helped him push the incubator from behind. Courtney, Joe shouted. We got trouble. Get the vans started. Right. She sprinted ahead and turned left at the next intersection. The loading docks lay just a couple dozen meters past that intersection. They could still make it if they pushed hard. From astern, the sound of rifle fire dispersed with curses pushed Joe to greater effort. She glanced over her shoulder. The brothers were holding the guards down well, covering each other as they retreated in time with the incubator. But it was only a matter of time before reinforcements arrived, then the balance of power would shift. The intersection to the loading docks was so close now, just a few moments more. And then guards appeared from further ahead, and Joe's heart sank. To the front! Malcolm shouted. Almost immediately, one of the brothers shifted his fire ahead and sprinted forward to the side of the incubator. Again, the approaching guards took cover, but these were more numerous, and a few returned fire. It was far off target, at least for now, but it was more than the nothing the guards to the rear were doing, and it was only a matter of time before they sighted in better. But the intersection was just ahead. Gotta take a hard left here, Joe said. Jorgen nodded and pulled with all his might. 
The little cart the incubator rested on squealed in protest. Its wheels were on casters so they could turn freely, but the immense weight resting on them and the incubator's forward momentum worked against Jorgen's attempt. The cart twisted, lining the incubator up with the crossing corridor, but it kept on moving forward down the main corridor. Damn it! Joe and Malcolm spoke as one and pushed. Joe pushed until she felt she could launch herself to the moon if only her feet were not solidly on the ground. Slowly, ever so slowly, the incubator's motion changed, veering to the left. Joe almost thought they were going to make it, and then the incubator slammed side-on into the corridor wall, its rear half extending out into the central corridor in plain view of the guards. Joe muttered a number of carefully selected curses and ducked behind the bulk of the incubator as the guards at the front renewed their fire. They were more precise this time, and the Ford brother joined her in taking cover. I'm going to have to take the gloves off. It was Grant. That meant Thomas was alone in the main corridor, at least for the moment, covering the rear. Joe nodded. She hated it, but there was no choice. Not if they were going to get out of there with the skins intact. Do it. Grant nodded, and then let his rifle drop down into his tactical sling. He pulled two grenades from where they hung on the webbing of his chest and yanked the pins out with his teeth. Then he stood and threw them both toward the guards approaching from the front. He immediately turned and raised his rifle, shooting back down the corridor toward the guards Thomas had pinned down. Joe knew without asking that he was no longer shooting to keep their heads down. He was shooting to take the guards out. Multiple shouts of chagrin and outright fear preceded the grenade's explosion by a second or so. After that, the rifle fire ended, and the only noise coming from that area of the corridor were screams of sudden agony. From the other direction, Grant's shifting fire joined with Thomas's, brought forth equal cries of pain as his shot struck home. Joe wanted to cover her ears, but she could not. If this was the price to be paid for humanity's penance, then so be it. Or at least, that's what she tried to tell herself. It was better than listening to the screams. The van sped through Camp Tycho's main gate, passing the still prostrate guards as though they were not even there. Joe slumped in the passenger seat and did not look over at Thomas. A lot of men had just been badly hurt or outright killed. She had not done it herself, true, but she had given the order and the guilt of that weighed on her soul. Was it worth it? Could she really think that what she had allowed Thomas and Grant to do was justified? She glanced over her shoulder, toward the incubator in the back of the van, and tried to reassure herself that it was. A few had been hurt, some wrong had been done, but it was all for good cause, to right an even greater wrong that had been done. Sure, those guards had not perpetrated that wrong personally, but they had aided and abetted those who had. They were cogs in the monstrous machine that had done this, just like the ancient German guards at Auschwitz. Somehow, that line of thinking did not make Joe feel much better. Chapter 46 Airlift Carlton blew the landing. He blew it completely. For a moment, he thought he may have even blown out one of the tires the landing was so hard. A second later, the craft slowing and responding to rudder commands as normal, he shelved that idea. But damn, he had not landed that badly since... Hell, not since before his first solo. He was nervous as hell. It had taken a lot of doing to get here. He had filed half a dozen separate flight plans, all of them legitimate, taking students from Luna to Earth and to Gagarin and back, with landings in ten separate airfields all across the globe. It was all legal and completely normal. He had embarked on training flights like these countless times over the last year. The only problem was there was no student in this particular flight. That student did not exist. Carlton had, with help from one of Isaac's companies, completely fabricated the hopeful young man who was not flying this night, right down to his social security number. He even had a photo ID, somehow. He was an average-looking guy. He would go unnoticed pretty much anywhere in the world, which Carlton supposed was the point. 
He was no expert, but all the documents Isaac's people had crafted looked pretty legit and impressive to him. The folks from the company had assured him that he was correct, and the documents would stand up even to the deepest scrutiny. It made Carlton wonder exactly what these people and their company really did for a living. He decided he did not want to know. Delta 87 Kilo Lima taxi to parking on Charlie. The voice in his headset would have been any one of a thousand controllers anywhere in the world, except for the Aussie accent. Carlton acknowledged and steered the craft to the taxiway, and then to a small hangar on the far side of the field. Delta kept little hangars on most of the larger airfields around the globe just for circumstances like this. Training flights often landed late, requiring the pilots to spend the night, and leaving the expensive craft out in the open just invited mischief, whether from vandals or thieves or just bad weather. Maintaining a hangar was relatively inexpensive compared to losing a transorbital transport, so it just made sense. Ground personnel met his craft at the entrance to the hangar, which opened at an electronic command from the craft, and guided him in with their glowing batons. Then they left him in peace to shut down and close up the hangar. They worked for the airport, not Delta, and had no interest in what he did at all, as long as he didn't violate any airport rules, which was just as well, considering. Carlton secured the craft's systems and hit the keystroke that would close the hangar door, then climbed the stairs from the craft to the interior of the hangar. As he did, the parallel between this night and the night weeks ago when he met Joe and Malcolm in Boston struck him. The whole thing was just surreal. Was he really doing this? He had meant when he said then, it was insane. Morally correct, absolutely. Necessary? Very likely. But insane, nonetheless. He was covered. There should be no way to link him to what Joe and Malcolm were up to from what he could see, but it was still a huge risk. At least Allison had plausible deniability. Worst case, she and the boys would be okay. Slightly less bad case, McAllister had called periodically over the last year, trying to lure both of them back. If it looked like the heat was going to come down, they could just slip away on a Starliner. Maybe. There was no sense griping or worrying about it now. He had made a commitment. Joe and Malcolm were relying on him, and if he backed out now, they were screwed. Completely. He couldn't do that to them. Squaring his shoulders, Carlton strode across to the door that led from the hangar to the parking lot beyond. Next to the door was a trio of key rings hanging from small hooks. Delta always kept cars for visiting air crews to use to get them to and from the hotel if necessary. He took a moment to log the car out using a terminal near the door, then took one of the key sets, fished one particular key off another set, and exited the hangar. But before he got in the car, he flipped through the keys, really just small cards containing encryption algorithms that would tell the door's computer to unlock, and fingered the one that he had taken from the second set inside the hangar. Then he shrugged and got into the car. He drove away with the windows rolled down and the music blasting. In the wake of his car's passage, that one key, the key to the hangar door, fell to the ground and settled at the edge of the road. Jorgen found the key after only a few minutes of looking. The truly impressive part is that he never appeared to be searching for it at all. He was simply walking down the road, slowly, but then it was late at night, or very early in the morning, depending on one's perspective, and then stopped to tie his shoelaces. When he stood up, a single infrared flash from one of the gadgets he wore on his belt signaled his success. Joe lowered her spyglasses and whistled softly. He's good. Like she did not know that already, after everything that had happened the last several days. Beside her, Thomas chuckled, but he didn't reply. Vans sat back a kilometer or so from the airfield's fence line, inside a small copse of trees that provided extra shadows and cover from prying eyes and searching aircraft. The NSA surely had surveillance craft up, or would soon enough if they did not already, which seemed highly unlikely. Joe's team sat there for an hour before sending Jorgen out to clear the way, 
watching for even the smallest hint that security had been notified about them. But again, the secrecy of the NSA's operation at the lab appeared to be working for Joe and her team. In any other situation, every law enforcement agency on the continent would have been called by now, and every airfield shut down or at least tightly monitored. But doing that would bring up questions as to what was going on, questions that would be too hard to dodge, especially since the news media would inevitably descend on the scene. No, just like the car chase in Quito, their pursuit now would be a job done strictly within the NSA's confines, which gave Joe a significant advantage, as long as she didn't squander it. Joe raised her spyglasses again and waited the second or two it took for them to focus in on the hangar building. Jorgen was fiddling with something next to the door. Why would it take so long to unlock a simple door? What was he? The lights went out all over the airfield. Joe's internal monologue shut up. That's the signal, Thomas said, and started the van up. Joe quirked an eyebrow at him, but did not argue. Jorgen had said he would signal when the hangar was ready. She just hadn't realized it would be so dramatic. That was certainly his signal, but damn. It was a good thing this airfield was not busier. Many of the busier fields had control towers manned 24-7 and guard crews on call at night. But they had picked this one specifically because the tower shut down, and with it, the rest of the airport at 0100 each night. No one would be around to notice the power outage. And by the time everyone returned at 0500, just two hours from now, said Joe's inner monologue in annoyance, Jorgen would have reset the lights, and the only record of their outage would be on the electric bill at the end of the month. Thomas drove slowly back through the cops and across a short field until he reached the road. A short distance later, he came to the road leading to the airfield entrance and turned right, headlights off and driving by low-light goggles, as he had the whole way from Camp Tycho. It was still unnerving, but Joe found herself less fidgety over it than she had been. Good timing on that, since she was about to leave the van behind for good. They passed a darkened sign naming the field and a low, squat building next to the control tower that Joe presumed was the airport's administration building. A quick turn to the right brought them into a long road that circled the runway and led past a number of hangars and buildings containing air and spacecraft maintenance, rental, and flight training facilities. Or at least that's what Joe presumed they were. That was the typical fare for businesses at the airfields. Somewhere there was probably a small cafe or restaurant where pilots flying in from other airfields in the region could get their $100 hamburgers. She found herself smiling as she recalled Carl bitching about that old moniker. It made no sense, he always said, since no one had used dollars or dinars or rubies or whatever for centuries. But just as seafaring terminology and tradition lived on in Starliners and other spacecraft, so did other old-time sayings elsewhere. It was hardly surprising. He never wanted to hear that, though. Thomas stopped the van in front of the Delta hangar and secured the engine. Wasting no time, Joe hopped out and pulled open the side door, allowing Courtney and Malcolm to spill out. Both stretched for a moment, restoring circulation to limbs that had been squeezed between bags of equipment and half-empty jugs of fuel for several hours, while Grant pulled a second van in beside them. No one spoke. They all knew what to do. Grant, Thomas, Malcolm, and Courtney headed to the rear of Grant's van and began unloading the incubator, while Joe headed into the hangar. She found the interior still dark and stopped just within the door, suddenly hesitant to proceed for fear of running into something. Jorgen, Joe called, as quietly as she dared. The noise of someone moving the blackness to her right preceded his voice by a second. Looks like your man did his job, Jorgen said. That was good. Not that Joe expected Carl to lay down on the job, but still, in a caper like this. She shook her head. That did not bear thinking on. All was well. That was what was important. Step to your right. Joe moved to obey instinctively, or maybe it was the tone of the quiet command in Jorgen's voice, or the fact that he had low-light goggles on and she did not. 
Regardless, a second or two after she moved, the light from outside, faint though it was, was blocked by the forms of her teammates lugging the incubator through the door. Like her, they paused a short distance inside the hangar. Unlike her, they were panting. Damn thing was right heavy. The door shut with a solid-sounding click, and then a second later, the interior lights turned on. Joe winced, blinking at the sudden brightness while her eyes adjusted. Fuck, man, Grant snapped, his voice strained from the effort of carrying the incubator as much as from sudden annoyance. At least warn us. Jorgen sniffed, but remained silent. Come on, let's get this damn thing loaded, Thomas replied. Carl's craft had a cargo hatch in his underbelly. It was lowered, forming a short ramp into the craft's rear. There, its small cargo hold lay. It was, in fact, a very small cargo hold. The incubator almost did not fit inside. And wouldn't that be a suitable bit of irony if they had gone to all the trouble of stealing the damn thing, only to be unable to make a getaway because they picked the wrong kind of vehicle? It took several minutes of grunting, cursing, and adjusting, but eventually they managed to get the thing in and secured. Joe glanced at a risk chronometer, 0415. It took a bit longer than she thought it would. They were cutting it close. Thank you all, she said to the team, and gave them a weary smile. Somber nods and a grim from Malcolm were the only responses. This bunch had never been particularly talkative. That was Joe's only complaint about them. Do you two need anything? Jorgen glanced at Courtney and quirked an eyebrow at her. She shrugged in response and turned her gaze to Joe. Just don't screw the pooch up there, she replied. Don't want all my effort wasted. Joe could not help but smile a bit wider at that. I'll try not to. She shook hands first with Courtney, then Jorgen, and added, Be careful out there. They nodded and, without another word, turned and walked to the door. Jorgen pressed the door's control pad, and the lights turned off. A moment later, the door opened, and they were silhouetted for a second into comparatively brighter light outside. Then they were gone, and the door clicked shut once more. The lights turned back on. Joe breathed in deeply and turned to the remainder of her team. Right. Let's get on board and get ready. Okay, getaway in progress. Um, managed to make it out of there. Unfortunately, had to shoot some people, which sucks. But uh, I made it to the airport, and uh, looks like uh, Carlton's hooked them up pretty well. I get the uh, got transport. We'll see what happens next. See if they can make it any further or not. Um, as you might or might not know the uh i drew a little bit on personal experience for some of this carlton stuff because i've never been a professional pilot but i am a pilot private pilot and i've flown into airports and done the hangar thing and then done uh you know i've never worked for an airline so i don't know for sure how they are set up but uh extrapolated a bunch of stuff so i kind of like playing with the, the pilot thing in carlton there um because i tell you what when you're landing you really grease it so you don't even barely feel the the wheels touch down you're like yeah i'm the man but when you botch it completely you're like son of a god that sucks and just like anything it's all a skill and the better you do at it the better you feel but uh so i kind of like that let's see um what others is there to talk about in these chapters not much except uh you might have the notion that action's gonna become more actiony in the next you know bit here as we get towards the end and you'd be right because you know got a accelerating excitement to the the final conflict yeah so you expect more of uh, more chicanery and and racing around and and yeah it's gonna be good i think hopefully you do too uh yeah not too, not too much else to add hopefully you like these if you did please uh share, spread the word 
tell all your compadres about the good stuff we're doing here. Go by my website, uh, mikekingswood.com. Become a member. Yeah, help support the podcast and the writing writing bit with a couple of months a month. That'd be uh, super helpful. Or, you know, join the newsletter, learn about uh, new releases, since there's going to be a lot of them in the next year because of all this writing I've done. Um, or just, you know, come back next week. And it will be next week, I promise. No more of this uh, taking a few weeks off because of video game stuff. Um, back in the saddle. So, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, by all means, write me a line if you want to. Or leave a comment. Otherwise, I'll, I'll just see you next week. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>